weekly World Economic Report on Drive Time. Yeah, welcome back. A weekly World Economic Report. And of course, 0829-913-913 is uh, the WhatsApp line. Lots of uh, WhatsApps coming in about uh, Jacob Zuma. Uh, yeah, people say he must face justice. We'll read them out later on. But coming up in this week's report, ESCOM board approves a probe into racism allegations against CEO Dorita. Cassata suggests a reduction of work hours as part of labor reforms. <laughs> Oil sours to $65 a barrel after OPEC chooses not to uh, relax its supplies. Online is always for comment, a senior researcher, Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria, Dr. Jason Misiorka, and his Twitter handle is at Jason Misiorka. Dr. Misiorka, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Shafiq, and hello to the listeners. And Mr. Dorator, CEO of ESCOM, facing um, some headwinds, uh, ESCOM board proving a probe into racism allegations against him. I read a report this week that said that that's a lot of nonsense. So Dorator's trying to block the uh, patronage networks. I don't know which is true. There are two dominant narratives here, Shafiq, and one is, of course, coming from um, the, 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 the um, accusations which were laid out by the chief procurement officer, Solid Chitangano. But there also has been, we've seen the chairperson of the board, Professor Mahoba, he has indicated that there has been reports of racism going all the way back to a year ago. We are yet to see some sources from that. So there is that narrative. But then, of course, there is the counter-narrative that suggests that these are simply anti-reformists who are not willing to allow the process of reform within ESCOM. And both uh, both sides, um, you know, there, there, is a, there is a reasonable argument that um, they do put forward. So I suppose we need to see them um, with a pinch of salt. There could be potential politics playing in there, but there could also be serious objective issues being raised by both narratives. The point, though, being that uh, this was never going to be easy. What we do know at the moment is that uh, the ESCOM chief, the CEO, he has the support of the president, the minister of finance, and several other key uh, individuals. Keep in mind that he was appointed under quite some controversy, um, especially with COSATU and unions, and um, largely black business uh, raising uh, eyebrows and suggesting that surely if we are talking about transformation, the parastatals need to be transformed. So there was that controversy, and this kind of showdown was expected, and it has become quite a serious issue to the extent that the, um, the, the Standing Committee on Public Accounts, they have ordered an investigation to look into this matter. And perhaps what is more surprising than that, or more interesting than that, is that the process of deviations and financial allocation for ESCOM have been put on hold to try and deal with issue, this issue first. What that means is that if there were any solutions on the pipeline for ESCOM, we've got to uh, kick them down the line and deal with this issue of allegations of racism or not. And um, that's where we are. So there is a showdown. And um, 
we will wait to see what the standing the standing committee did suggest that they will appoint an independent senior council we don't know who will uh, constitute that particular council but uh, it sure will take some time so this is just going to be more delay for ESCOM, which is already at intensive care unit now, I mean, what is interesting is that Dorator himself has remained completely quiet. He hasn't said a word. Um, I know from the media aspect, he hasn't exactly been um, voluble or he's never had verbal diarrhea when it comes to the media. He seems to have just kept his head down and done whatever he's, he's had to do. So um, I'm sure you agree. It's a very interesting uh, scenario. But I think it's going to be even more interesting if it so happens that he's um, exonerated, that it wasn't racism, that it was something else. This is going to look ugly. If we look at his track record, uh, Shafiq, he is <clears throat> a is a level-headed uh, technocrat, and that explains exactly why he has not dived into what is going on in the media, unlike um, Brian Molefe and everybody else that was in charge during the Zuma era. We know, you know, they, there was a lot of political shutdowns happening. So the, the, the CEO, Andrew Durator, he's been very muted, quiet, and um, he, I remember the interview that uh, was held just before he took helms. Uh, in, in, he did indicate that he knew that this was not going to be easy. There were going to be counter forces. I clearly remember him raising the point, but he did say that he hoped that he's uh, up to the top, and therefore... Um, you know, this was expected from his uh, from his point of view. So the reality, what we need to establish as facts here, is that whether the allegations are true or not, and at the moment we cannot rule out whether they are true or we cannot rule out whether they are not, but whether they are true or not, there are counter forces that are anti-reformist. They will not allow ESCOM to go the sustainability route because it's their cash cow. They will refuse, and this is by no means to uh, subjudicate or to suggest that um, the CPO is involved in any of that. But there is a counter narrative that we can expect, and it's anti-reformist that is not going to allow the transformation of ESCOM, not in the sense of uh, the affirmative action uh, uh, context, but in the context of being transformed from a failing uh, parastatal to a sustainable parastatal. That process is not going to be smooth sailing. Whether with, with the Andrew Dorita or anybody else, the process is going to be messy and cranky and there are going to be anti-reformists against it. However, if they do slip up against Dorita, it's not going to be very good for them, isn't it? Because um, they lose a huge amount of ammunition if they can't, and I'm just uh, I'm speculating here, if they can't play the race card because Dorator is the ideal guy to play the race card with, with blonde hair and blue eyes. He's a sitting duck. The, the, the interesting thing about South Africa is the contamination of the race uh, or transformation. And I think it's uh, you see that uh, contamination of the... Uh, racial transformation in every sector of the society. Keep in mind the reason we have BEE is a very genuine reason to try and transform and, and, and ensure that there is equality and equity among population groups. The process itself has good intention. However, if you look at how it's played out, we've ended up with uh, cronies 
and and all of these uh, opportunists who have used that opportunity, whether publicly or not, but they have used the opportunity to corrupt themselves. And we know that because if you go back to the Zuma administration, you will recall the the double narrative within the ANC about white monopoly capital and monopoly capital. And there was one camp that suggested the problem in the country is monopoly capital, and another camp suggested it's white monopoly capital with a white prefix. The problem with, uh, and the showdown went, went on and on to the point that ANC finally settled for the official position is monopoly capital without the white prefix. But that has not stopped the white monopoly capital advocates, Zuma and his camp, to continue pushing the narrative. Again, that's a contamination of transformation in my assessment. So you see that happening everywhere. It is very possible that every time there is an opportunity to deal with serious issues from a technocratic point of view, nobody wants to take these things lying down. They will fight back. And South Africa's original sin, which is the sin of racism, the moment that it's leveled against you, you really are trading on a thin ice, whether it's true or not. But it's a very heavy burden to carry and very murky waters for you to get yourself out of uh, unless you really have a very credible, um, uh, uh, you know, um, um, a very credible information, very credible track record. So those are issues that we really have to thresh out, but I hope that the public can also understand that the issue of race is not that uh, superficial now. It really, there are a lot of contaminations and entanglements that we see in the question of transformation that we are witnessing in various sectors of the society today. I mean, I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Um, I mean, Dorator, for argument's sake, and I'm not defending him, uh, any difficult decision he could make, people could turn around and say, you make it, you're making it because you have blonde hair and blue eyes. That's why you're making this decision. Uh, it's a difficult position to be in, isn't it? It's a tough one. But I still, I, I, I think that the fact that uh, the president is on his side and so is the Minister of Finance, um, I think that uh, there is more for the president to lose, especially given that we are heading towards uh, local government elections, if these allegations are proved to be true, number one. But also, secondly, it gives the CEO, uh, Andrew Dorita, some confidence that he has the highest uh, power um, within the government, his appointing power that, that supports him and perhaps understands his track record. So I suppose that... Um, that gives him a level of confidence that he's not really out in the woods. He does have support, um, and especially the highest support that he can get. That counts for something, and I suppose that's also why he's decided not to get into the fighting ring and allow the process to take its course. Um, the board itself, they made a decision, and they did say they, con- they came out, they gave a statement, they condemned racism and any form of discrimination, But if you read their statement, they also said, however, we do support the transformation of ESCOM from a failing enterprise to a sustainable organization. So it seems that they are trying to be also reasonably balanced from the outset. Previously, it would really largely just be one-sided argument put forward. So again, that, that kind of support or objective perspective from the board it does not conclude just yet that the CEO is guilty, and, and that counts for, them, for something as far as he is concerned. Yeah, we're going to have to watch that space, I think, uh, very closely.
Another interesting uh, question, Kusatu, uh, suggesting that work hours go from 45 hours to 40 hours per week. Uh, what do you make of that? Um, so what I make out of that are two things. One is I think that Kosato, uh, in my perspective, are reading the times very wrong at the moment. The way to recover the economy is not to work less, uh, certainly. And we need to figure out more sustainable ways. Now, these this, this, um, recommendations have been suggested by unions across the world. As a matter of fact, in France, in France they, they work for about 36 hours and they keep fighting for even lesser working hours. So what we see in, in South Africa now is the wrong reading of the times, and I think that uh, they've been overtaken by events. They are not as powerful as they used to be, but they do know they will get support from their members and so forth. But what we know is that it is definitely not the way to go if you want to recover the economy. And by the way, we have seen the latest stats as a data that suggests that uh, conclusively the economy grew at a negative 7% in 2020. Uh, against a projected minus 7.7%. So with that, you need every hand on the plow to try and get us out of the uh, situation that we are in. But yes, Kosato is making that case. At the moment, the average working hours are 45 hours, and they are pushing for 40 hours. Uh, so we are simply are saying the economy should be less productive even, and I think that is a race to the bottom. It certainly is. I'm just wondering whether that's actually even going to fly. Um, you know, I mean, our, our uh, trade union landscape is fragmenting. Um, if you consider what Kusatu was not even 10 years ago and what it is today, and all the breakaways from Kusatu and all the various interest groups, it does seem, and I'd like you to comment on this, as if a whole trade union movement uh, landscape is uh, mutating and fragmenting into little bits. I wrote a piece, and um, uh, my argument about this, uh, Shafiq, was that if you look at the trade unions themselves, Kosatu is a shadow of its former self. It was a very powerful union going all the way back to the 1980s. And uh, we know that uh, it's, 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 it's one of the most active, or it was one of the most active labor unions in the continent and in the world, uh, one would say. What has happened, though, and my argument has been what what has happened in the last 10 years was the mistake that every labor union uh, or most of the labor unions do, which is once they are in alliance with governing parties, they forget who they are fighting for, they forget their interests and their objectives. But what happened with COSATU here is that uh, they got in, they tried to push Zuma in and uh, they thought Zuma was on their side, and halfway into Zuma's term, Zuma, of course, he threw them off board, and they turned around and started fighting now against Zuma, and the breakaways started then. So Zuma, Zuma's administration is responsible for the fragmenting of the union, and part of this, that is because they placed their bet on a political party, a very big mistake, and of course they lost the bet. So they ultimately now they've ended up with a working class that is really uh, diminishing or dying, not in the sense of the individuals themselves, but in the sense that workers or the working class is not as represented as they were. And that explains my, my, my qualm with uh, unions, as I've always argued, that even their legitimacy is at question at the moment because they are not even representing the real working class. They're representing public servants. So firstly, they are fragmented, and secondly, they are located in the wrong place. 
and 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 partly out of all of that they have lost their sense of ideology of uh, what their key objective really should be which is to fight for the working class so all in all this is to say that uh, unfortunately with the case that they are making i suppose these kosatu or whether you're talking of the federation of trade union they they are all trying to have a comeback and one of the ways to do so is make as much noise as possible create sound bites be controversial that's a quick way to gain popularity but it's a wrong timing i would say now our final story oil uh, 65 dollars a barrel that has been predicted and of course opec um trying to cash in um they did extremely badly over the COVID period because people were not as mobile um air traffic is a shadow of what it used to be so Demand for oil, not as high as it's been. Um, and I can't see OPEC. OPEC is not producing much oil. No, so what they decided to do is to not produce more oil, even though the demand is rising. And that's one way that they are suggesting, or that's one way they, they, they try and uh, recover uh, the oil prices. Of course, these economies, keeping in mind that uh, this is a catch-22 situation. On one side... Um, when the prices of oil increase, our inflation globally would increase, especially because you have a very small number of countries producing oil compared to the rest of the world. And therefore, it does affect the global inflation and cost of living rises up higher and so forth and so on. But it is good for these economies. That's how they generate their revenue. So at this particular moment in time, every country that can cash in from uh, oil production or oil uh, sales, that's what they are trying to do. So OPEC plus, they decided collectively it was an easy decision previously. We know that they do get into a showdowns and for political reasons, but they decided that they were not going to increase their production even though the demand is rising. And uh, that is meant to inject more revenue in their, uh, in their growth, GDP growth and in their economy. That really is more nationalistic. So I am concerned about the fact that um, we are not just seeing, and we know that the new IMF uh, chief was appointed a couple of uh, weeks ago. She did warn about um, a new form of nationalism, although she was referring to a vaccine nationalism. But what we are seeing are nationalisms rising from all quarters where we can, whether we are talking about countries closing out for foreigners now, and I'm not talking about a few years ago, I'm talking of now, for them to use that as an opportunity to generate more revenue. So we are also seeing a nationalism on the oil front where they are focused more on what they can get out of their cost, the high cost of oil. So we are seeing this kind of trend on both the vaccine, the holding, and now the oil, and it's a difficult balance to, to make, and I suppose... If you have the, 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 the cards to play uh, against uh, the rest of the world for your benefit as a nation state, that really is what is going on um, in these countries. Yeah, last question in the long term. I'm sure this is going to lead to a lot of energies um, being dedicated to um, the Tesla model of alternative transport of electrical cars and all this kind of stuff. So they're going to have to be careful in the long term because they could actually uh, shoot themselves in the proverbial foot. It will take a couple of decades, um, mostly because uh, the 
the bulk of the world is really still dependent on oil, but you're right, in the long haul, um, it's, it's, it's a situation that they will have to rethink. There is, of course, a drive towards renewable energy and trying to see what we can do to not exploit the resources that we have now, but also to really save the world from global carbon footprint. So, yes, in the long run, uh, they will have to relook at how they diversify their economies. But uh, this is really going to take probably the next 100 years or less, because most of the countries in most of the countries in the world are developing countries, and Asia, especially, is heavily dependent on oil, and it is, of course, the most populated region in the world. So they know that they have market there already, even though the Europeans and the North Americans are diminishing in terms of life expectancy, in terms of their economies and birth rates and so on. But uh, there is a, an entire uh, economy in the East that they know that will still provide the demand for their oil. Dr. Jason Misioka, Senior Researcher, University of Pretoria, Twitter handle at Jason Misioka. Thanks uh, for joining us uh, for another weekly World Economic Report. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week. Different stories. Thank you so much, Shafiq, for having me.